going to get our message going this morning. We're going to get our word on. It is uh, November 8, 2009. Our message this morning is called Identity Theft. It's good to see you doing well, Miss Didi. Yeah. The doctor called and said that he wanted to tell us what was wrong with you, right? And then you went, and he just wanted an office visit because there's nothing wrong with you. Amen. Amen. I like that report. Identity theft. You hear about this on TV all of the time. It's become kind of the uh, advertisement du jour. At least it's the only one that we can talk about. The others we really can't talk about from the pulpit. They come on constantly all of the time. And uh, there's a credit monitoring service. There's an identity theft service. And they, they seem to dominate the airways. And it's because it's a problem. I was in the credit business for a long time. And uh, it can be a sticky thing when somebody impersonates you uh, to go back and prove that you did or did not sign contracts. And things have a way of hanging with you for a long time. It's not that kind of identity theft that we're going to talk about this morning. There is identity theft going on in the church. The church does not understand who it is and what it's called to be. And Abel Torres, what are we? We are sons of God. Sons of God. That's Abel's message in his life. That's something you can't spend time around Abel and not hear. He's going to tell you, male or female, you are a son of God. And that's because it's part of his life. The church in general, we do not view ourselves like we should. Occasionally we'll view someone else as a great man of God. But rarely will we view ourselves as men and women of God. And for whatever reason, the greater the distance somebody travels from, the further they are away from your familiarity the greater man of God you think they are. Well, somebody surely had to grow up next door to Jesus, right? <laughs> How about that? Turn with me to John 8. <laughs> Tell me when you're there. there. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Elizabeth. There. <laughs> I tell you, I have been around quiet, gentle people who move the heavens. I do not believe that volume should be a substitute for anointing. But there is something that is refreshing about being around people who are willing to lose their voice, crying out to God. There is no right or wrong, but there is certainly a level of intensity that must accompany your walk with Jesus. And all too often, because we do not have great need, all too often, because we are surrounded by affluence, apathy plagues us. People have great titles, but they do not have great function. People have great attendance, but they do not have great harvest in their lives. This is not our goal. We've forsaken every trapping that we can find of visible means of success. We've denied ourselves all of the things that society around us says we must have to be a church. There is no steeple. If you find that disconcerting, I'm sorry. There is no stained glass. There are no pews. And truthfully, if we had to meet in the parking lot, I don't think that it would change our service one bit. Our sole goal is to find out who we are in Jesus and teach others who they are in Jesus and then perform within our function. In John 8, we're going to pick up in the 12th verse. But before we get into this 12th verse, I have learned that if I don't set the stage as it was in the first century, it can be difficult for us to relate to and pick up all of the concepts that are being discussed. We have just concluded the Feast of Tabernacles. In John 7, Jesus is at the feast that the Jews call Sukkot. And 
he waits for the last and greatest day, a day where the Jews would be singing Isaiah 12 about water drawn from the wells of salvation. They would have a golden vessel on a priest's shoulder, and they would be walking through the crowd singing Isaiah 12. And they would pour this golden vessel into twelve earthen vessels. At that moment, the last and greatest day of the feast in John 7.37, Jesus declares in a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. John puts, not in parentheses, they didn't have them in their language, but in his style of writing, he lets you know, he clarifies this statement. He says, by this he meant the spirit that they were later to receive. This was a time where Israel tabernacled with God. They celebrated their temporary structures, looking forward to a permanent dwelling with God. They would one day set aside Moses' tabernacle, and they would take on Solomon's temple. They would set aside a time of warfare and conquest, and take on a time of permanent peace. All of this was meant to foreshadow something. It was meant to foreshadow a day when we would lay aside all of our spiritual battle, lay aside this tabernacling in the temporary flesh, and we would take upon ourselves a building from God called a glorified body. We would rule and reign the earth as the sons of God, and the nations would stream to Israel learning the law of God. This is what this feast is meant to proclaim. They did this every year for 1,600 years. And Jesus identifies himself with the feast. Well, we pick up then in John 8. By the way, to skip the first 11 verses, you need to know that there was a woman who was caught in a sin. Jesus first dismissed her accusers. He's done the same thing for you. He has dismissed your accuser. You now stand free from accusation. Then he refuses to condemn this woman, but says, leave your life of sin. He has done the very same thing for you. He condemned your accuser. He refused to condemn you. And now he simply says, leave your life of sin. But we are finishing the Feast of Tabernacles and we get to our text today. The text starts in the 12th verse. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Now if you skip ahead to the 20th verse, John gives you the location. The location is important. If you say something near an exit, it might be more pertinent than if you said it in the basement. There is a reason that John gives the location. He says that the location is in the temple area near the treasury. This is because history tells us that there were giant golden menorahs. Menorahs that symbolize the Spirit of God. Some people call them candelabras. That's because they've never been to a Jewish home. They grew each year as people brought offerings they built onto these. And they were blazing torches that to the Israelites symbolized God's presence that led them in a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud or fiery cloud during the day. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is identifying himself with Yahweh God who led them. He's doing this now for about the third time on the Feast of Tabernacles. When he said, if any man thirsts, let him come and drink of me, he was identifying himself with Jeremiah's spring of living water that he called God. This is a very bold way that a Jew would say, I am God. You need to understand that Jews do not speak the name of God. It's important when you read and you hear Jesus being challenged in his identity 
the Jews did not say the words Yahweh. Because of their reverence for the commandments, they did not want to use his name frivolously. That's a hard word for me to say, but I'm from Louisiana and you'll forgive me. I think you got the interpretation, right? They didn't want to use it carelessly. Thank God for thesauruses. So they substituted things. In fact, most of the time, a Jew would say, Blessed be He. Or blessed be the name, Hashem. Because they did not want to use God's name in a way that could be considered careless. With that in mind, let us read. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You might say Jesus was grounded in who he was. Do you remember those awkward teenage years? Maybe a rap song was popular. So you became like a rapper. Maybe Garth Brooks was a big deal. So you suddenly let lightning roll, thunder roll. Maybe the next year, the Beastie Boys were the in thing. You see, I have my chronology backwards, but in any case, at least I've heard of these groups. <laughs> so you were no sleeping till Brooklyn. Or maybe you come from a different generation and Jesus was just all right with you. I don't know. But the thing is, is I know every human being goes through a time period in their life where they're searching for who they are. They tend to be self-conscious, scared to act out, and then they strongly identify with some other personality that they imitate and yet call themselves unique. Right? Somebody's got a pink mohawk because they just want to be unique. Except also a famous rock star happens to have a pink mohawk. So we want to be considered unique as long as we're sufficiently the same so that we are not persecuted. Jesus had no such delusions. He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. He knew who he was. That kind of strength of character is magnetic. In your own law it is written the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. He was speaking of the presence of God. And there is no way in the presence of God unless you find out who Jesus is. And when you find out who Jesus is, He begins to show you who you are. His identity is found in the Father. Your identity is found in Him. You are nothing apart from Him, and He was nothing apart from the Father. But you are everything in Him, and He is everything in the Father. As the church begins to get hold of this, you won't have to tell people what to do. Because who they are will determine what they do, and what they do will point to who they are. You know a tree by its fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. Jesus was able to stand and say, do not believe me 
unless I do the, the things the Father does. But if I do them, then believe the signs themselves. Yet we tell our children, do as I say and not as I do. This is the problem with the church. Do as I say and not as I do. An effeminate male who has never fallen in love with Jesus can stand up wearing the right Halloween costume and demand that people do things in the name of Jesus. Do as I say and not as I do. We can offer magical hocus-pocus bread and declare people saved or run them through rivers and declare them in the kingdom and yet they have never tasted the kingdom. Most of you Protestants are alright with those descriptions, but it gets a little uglier when we begin to talk about a green chart, 14 points of doctrine, and if you agree, if up here it's okay, you've got God in the right box and you're part of our club, which means you're saved. Friends, I say you know a tree by its fruit. You know a tree by its fruit and a person is known by their deeds, even a small child. The devil has worked very hard to divorce faith from action, from deeds. The book of James was almost not included in the New Testament canon of Scripture because it was considered, follow Jesus, too Jewish. Makes you wonder how Jesus made it into the canon of Scripture, doesn't it? And by the way, James was his brother. Yeah, so two different races in the same family, I'm sure, right? Christianity's dirty little secret. We're a Jewish sect. We've just forgotten it. They were called followers of the way. When you want to know how God chose to relate to humanity, he chose to relate as a first century Jew. Perhaps we could learn something from that. That doesn't make you Jewish. Doesn't make me Jewish either. Makes me a co-heir of salvation. But I am still pretty well a pork-eating Gentile. And I like crawfish as well. I can't help it. I was raised in Louisiana. And occasionally I'll eat catfish. I was in Israel and I saw the largest catfish I've ever seen. They roam like lions with no natural predators there. <laughs> they are giant. And I thought we could fry them. We could eat them. And nobody would even want them but me, which means they would all be there. <laughs> no fighting for seconds. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? Well, it's about half right. He who knew no sin was going to be made sin for them. A Passover lamb was killed in Israel for Israel, by Israel, killed by Israel for Israel. Jesus is an Israeli savior. The fact that you now know about him was a mystery. A mystery that an apostle named Paul gave his life to bring to you. A treasured mystery. But he continued, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. If you have an NIV text note or if you have another translation... It may say something different there. There is no phrase in the original language here that is Greek that says, I am the one I claim to be. The original language simply says, I am. Ego emi. <laughs> uh, it's not Matthew's child. It's a Greek word. Ego. I. Emi. Am. 
There is no claimed to be. Your NIV text note inserts even another word. The NIV text note says, I am he. This is because when the Jew says, I am, if he were speaking in Hebrew, how would you say I am? Yahweh. Except Jews don't say Yahweh. They simply say, I am he. Jesus knew who he was. He had no problem saying it. And the only reason that people have a problem identifying it in the scripture is we are ignorant of the culture. Do you think that it would matter if Jesus was Polish? Some say no, some say yes. Would it matter if Jesus was Inuit? He was an Eskimo. What if Jesus was from the Congo? Of course it would matter. His culture, his custom, his language, the way that he related to people was the way that God chose to reveal himself to mankind. And it makes a difference. In one country, a kind gesture might be rude in another country. Do burial customs make a difference? Of course they do. Do eating customs make a difference? Of course they do. Everything that we see displayed in the Bible was said in first century Judaism for a reason. And we need to understand it to understand Jesus' words. But what I hope you get from this is Jesus, our light of the world, knew exactly who he was. Hear this next phrase. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been claiming all along. Jesus did not decide on the first day of their week Sunday, I am Yahweh's salvation. And on the second day say, well, maybe I'm just a prophet. And on the third day go, eh, you know, today I feel like I'm just a carpenter. And by the next day say, maybe I'm just Mary's son. And then by Thursday be on the rise again and say, you know, I'm feeling pretty anointed today. And then by Friday Eve, the Sabbath, say, you know what, I'm Messiah today. Jesus did not vacillate. He did not fluctuate in his presentation of who he was. He was consistently the one he claimed to be from the beginning to the end. How about you? How about me? When we look in the mirror of God's Word, are we consistently presented to the world as the sons of God? Or sometimes do we act as those who are not His children? How consistent is our character being presented to the world? And if it's not what we would like it to be, why? Jesus knew who He was. He could not be dissuaded he could not be put off course. He would not waver. He said what the Father said to say. He did what the Father said to do. I can't always make that claim. And I suspect there's a few of you out there that suffer from a similar problem that I do. Called a sinful nature. And yet, the hope of the gospel is that he has deposited his character in me. I did not get saved in the name of Richard. I did not get saved in the name of Fred. I did not get saved in the name of Gabriel. I got saved in the name of Yeshua, who is the Hamashiach. It's funny, it's written right there. We've studied it most of our lives. And would you even recognize it in the language that it was written in? We have a fine way of putting God in our own terms. Did you know that Buddha was not... Asian, Oriental. Did you know that? Some of you did and some didn't. You will never see a picture of Buddha in an Asian restaurant presented as an inhabitant of India. 
Because as his gospel was presented to native peoples of Asia, they pictured him looking like them. So his eyes began to change shape. His skin color began to change. And the historical picture of Buddha would look nothing like most pictures of Buddha that you see today. How about your picture of Jesus? Jeffrey Hunter. Childish American arguments. What you believe is evidenced in what you do. And if you think that is not true, you have deceived yourself. You tell me something. You teach people that it does not matter what they do, only what they believe, and then watch to see how they behave. It's a little bit like teaching children they come from animals and then being surprised that they act like animals. You teach them they are the sons of God, and they will begin to act like the sons of God. We are called to something more than what the church is. We are called to more. And it's so easy to say that and acknowledge it on a national or global scale. But what does that mean for you tomorrow? Recently, some political leader took the slogan, Be the change that you hope to see in the world. It's actually ripping off a 17th century philosopher who was actually ripping off Judaism. The Jews teach tikkun ha-olam, repair the world. They saw Adam's role as bringing the enemies of God under the control of God, subduing the earth. Friends, this begins in our daily life in the little things. This begins by ritually, when I say ritual, the Protestants, it sounds like a bad word, habitually doing what God has told you to do. And when you do it all day on Sunday, what he's told you to do, and you do it all day on Monday, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, it becomes your habit of obedience. And it becomes the defining characteristic of your life. And people ought to be able to look and go, I see that this one, in fact, I bet no matter what continent you put Richard on, no matter where on the planet, I bet if you put him on a continent with people, he will find a way into education. He will find a way into shaping and molding young men and women's lives. I bet that Marrero, no matter where he would be, would be a musical human being, leading other people in music. I know that Matthew Pirro will propel people into God's presence wherever he is. Because it has become their habitual obedience to the Lord and to the extent that you can see it and put a title on it. Something is wrong with our culture. We want a title before we see habitual, ritual obedience. We say, this one is a doctor. Really? Does he have a medicine bag? No. Has he ever cured anyone? No. But he, he believes he's a doctor. He slept at Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> this is a self-deception. Jews are function-oriented. When Jesus said, I am, what he wanted you to do was to look to see whether he did the things that God does. And if he did them, why would you say he is not God? Turn with me to John 21. We'll pick up the pace. Is that all right? I'm going to keep you in the New Testament for a little while. Then you will get an Old Testament immersion. You'll be in John 21. Pick up with me in the 11th verse. This is after the resurrection. We happen to be in the Galilee, northern Israel. Fresh water <coughs> lake that they fished in. Jesus said to them, now, verse 11, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. 
It was full of a large number of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now I want you to imagine this. Eric killed over dead in the parking lot. Some 40 days has gone by. You're out fishing. You're not in Eric's uh, You're not in the area I was buried. You're not in the area that I was killed. Murdered. Now you're fishing somewhere 110 miles to the north. Would you expect to see me? Probably not. They didn't expect to see Jesus. And yet, they didn't dare to say, Who are you, Lord? Because they knew it was Him. Well, how did they know? Because He was consistently Jesus. What was Jesus doing while He was alive? Well, He was ministering. He was helping people. He was multiplying fish. He was multiplying bread. He was feeding the masses. He was doing the very work of God. What was Jesus doing here? Well, He was multiplying fish. He was feeding His brothers. He was restoring them. He was Jesus. They didn't need to ask who was He because He was consistently who He was. Jesus had no identity crisis. He never experienced identity theft. The best that they could do was slander Him. But they could not change who He was. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to His disciples. By the way, that word, disciples in Greek, Kalamadem in Hebrew means imitators. It means to be disciplined by and imitate for the purpose of becoming like your rabbi or your teacher. Well, that puts a different slant on it. For the purpose of becoming like your teacher. It's one thing to simply learn material. It's another to learn to imitate their whole way of life. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? More than these. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. There have been so many sermons preached on this. They're going to the Greek tenses of the words. What difference do the Greek tenses of the words make? Look at what Jesus was doing. This is not a word play. Peter had experienced a problem. In John 18, 17, Jesus had denied that he knew him. I'm sorry, Peter had denied that he knew Jesus. He did this three times. When we act in a way that is not consistent with the character God put in us, it is like stealing from us. It can become cloudy. Who am I? If I am called to be a banker, and yet I stole from the bank, am I a thief or am I a banker? There is an identity crisis in Peter because he is called to feed sheep, and yet he has denied he even knows the shepherd. Jesus is restoring his identity. He is reminding Peter of who he is. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Then feed my sheep. A man's function determines his name. You call a man pastor when he feeds sheep. You should not call a man pastor that does not feed sheep. 
Jesus is restoring Peter's image of himself. And it hurts Peter at first because he doesn't understand. But what did Peter go on to do? Feed sheep. To the point where he laid down his life just like his master. The man who had gotten the revelation, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I will build on that, Peter. I will build on that. And Hades will not overcome it. Had forgotten who he was. Because he forgot who Jesus was. Saints, the way that we restore an understanding of who we are is to delve into who Jesus is and let him reveal it to us. The reason the church feels powerless, the reason the church does not know who we are called to be, is because to us Jesus is an intellectual concept. Our health insurance, our bank accounts, our cars, all the strength of our right arm keep us from ever having to truly search his character. But you go to a garbage dump in Mexico where they have nothing, and you will find out they possess everything. When they pray, they know who they are. And God comes through. Apathy is destroying the church because of affluence. I'm not crying out to be poor. I'm just crying out to be rich in faith. And I'm bold enough to say, Lord, whatever it takes. In my life, the times of struggle have been when I found out who God was and who I am. Why do we seek to avoid it at all costs? You love to watch a football game, right? Maybe not so much LSU and Alabama last night. But you like to watch a football game that's close, right? Because it tests the mettle of the people. And you find out just how good somebody really is. But we think Christians are tested by sitting safely in our offices, in our suits, simply acknowledging what we believe, never having to back it up with our deeds. Friends, I think that that's nonsense. I'm just going to be perfectly honest. I think that it is a system to pacify the American conscience. And what is worse is we allow ourselves to be extorted by men who do it because they make us feel good about ourselves. The Spirit of God will testify with your spirit that you are a son of God, if you are. You don't need a doctorate to do it. The Spirit of God will testify with your spirit that you are a son of God. You know that the Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It says nothing about going to a man and having him placate your conscience by telling you that you are a son of God. Why are we so scared? Could it be that the testing of our faith may prove that we are not genuine? Could it be that if we're struck against the stone, that's how you tested precious metals, that if we're struck against the stone that is the character of Christ, we might find ourselves falling short? There's a solution for that. If you lack wisdom, he'll give you more. If you lack faith, he will increase it. If you lack power, he will make all the power in the universe available to you. But if you are never honest about where you actually are with him, well, then you've deceived yourself. And you've kept yourself from the blessing of God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was ugly to Pharisees and nice to whores? Don't say that in church. You ought to be able to read the original language. Have you ever wondered? Because the Pharisees thought they were somebody they were not, and the whores knew exactly who they were. They beat their chest and said, Lord, save me a sinner. While the others said, I am so righteous. Read about the churches in Revelation, and you tell me if we don't mimic one. 
They knew it was the Lord because he was acting in a way that was consistent with his character. Peter had forgotten who Jesus was. He had forgotten who he was. Jesus reminded him by his function. When you find out who Jesus is, he shows you who you are. A man's function in the kingdom is his identity. Joseph, a Levite, who encouraged the brothers, got renamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. You find this all over the scripture. Men are named according to their function. There are some that are named according to functions that are not so good. How would you like the name Nabal or Ichabod? I don't know what those are, huh? Ichabod means the glory of the Lord departed. That'd be a great name for a child, huh? Hey, here's my baby, Nabal. Isn't he cute? His name means fool. You said, wait a minute. Did the name determine the function, or did the function determine the name? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer is both. The answer is both. Names were prophetic in the Bible, and also... Men's character determined what you thought when you heard the name was spoken. When you hear the word Jesus, does a good thing come to mind or a bad thing? Because of his authority, his character, his body of work. You ever known somebody named Abigail that was mean? But when you meet my Abigail, you'll suddenly love them all. A fat redhead named Caroline broke out my front tooth in the third grade been broken out several times before. So when I thought of Caroline, I didn't think of a kind thing until I met Caroline Knapps. And Caroline Knapps changed my conception of Caroline forever. When I thought of the word Abigail, I thought of a not-so-pleasant looking woman until God named my little girl Abigail. And now, it means what the name means in Hebrew, my father's joy. Do you understand how names and character and authority are synonymous with one another? When the Hebrew culture, it was so much so that when you mentioned the word Hashem, the name, you were not referring to the sounds that came out of someone's mouth when they called you for dinner. You were referring to their life's body of work, their function. Turn with me to Acts 9. See how we're working from left to right in the Bible? Let's put them all in order for you. That make you stay awake with me a little while. We stopped serving coffee. Doesn't mean you can't bring your own. We tried to knock the dust off of our uh, praise and worship hymnals this morning. Did you notice that? You see how the little ones dance before her? They're so uninhibited. I was tragically born without rhythm. Completely tone deaf. But I've learned to lose my inhibitions in him and become like a little child. Those of you that knew me 16, 17 years ago before I was born again, my football coach said I ran like I was in stone underwear. They called me Frankenstein and said there were bolts in my neck. As soon as I became born again, it was something that was at war with that macho image. It was the sweet nature and character of Jesus that has been transforming my life ever since. Now I find it almost contagious, an infectious joy that makes me want to get on the ground like a little child. That it made some say that man worships like he has ants in his pants. And that's just fine with me. I never set out to teach a style. There is an attitude and an intensity that I have found 
pleases the Lord. Did you know that the Bible says, find out what pleases the Lord? Amen. Find out. We sang a song about David dancing. You should have seen our David Hall dance Saturday morning with our brothers from Nigeria. And you know what? It pleased the Lord. Could it have made David uncomfortable? A little self-conscious? I thought when we got in Christ, we died to all of that. Why would we act as if we're still part of the world system? They don't accept you anyway. They'll keep you around like a pet, ask you to pray for them occasionally when something's wrong in their life. Friends, we are at war with the world, and the world is at war with us. And our battle does not take place with the flesh and blood. It takes place with spiritual powers in heavenly places. But even as God uses men, He uses men to accomplish His will. The devil uses men and women to accomplish His will. Ephesians 2 says that sons who are disobedient are subject to the prince of the power of the air. Let me ask you, if you are not filled and motivated in your actions by the Spirit of God, then what spirit is it that fills you? Because the few years that Bob Dylan served Jesus... He was right when he wrote the song, You're Going to Have to Serve Someone. It was like echoing Elijah's words on Mount Carmel. If God is God, then serve Him. If Baal is God, then serve Him. But quit wavering between two opinions. Since when we consistently demonstrate the character of Christ, the world will see it, and it will be magnetic. All men will be drawn to Him. Are you in Acts 9? We're going to hurry with Acts 9. In Acts 9, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the church, no, the way within Judaism, the way. The word church never actually appears in the word. Isn't that interesting? Oh, you'll find it written there in English, but it is not there in Greek. It is not there in Hebrew. There is a word for assembly. That's what Israel was called. Whether men or women, that he might take them as a prisoner to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light fell from heaven and flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What would you say Saul's worldly identity is? He's the persecutor. Why? Because that's his function. That's what he's doing. But watch when he asked the right question. Who are you, Lord? I am, that's a way of saying Yahweh, Yeshua, Yahweh's salvation. It's as if he answered Yahweh, Yahweh's salvation. This clears it up for Paul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. In Hebrew, to be told what you must do, to be told what your function is, is to be given a name. When you find out who Jesus is, He is Yahweh's salvation for you, you find out who you are. And how does it happen? He tells you what to do. Everybody can quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But for whatever reason, as we get to the last part of 9 and beginning of the 10th verse, we drop off. Did you know that God saved you in order that you would do the good work he prepared in advance for you to do. The book of Revelation says that he will write on you a new name that nobody knows. I'll give you a hint. It will have to do 
with what you did in this life. We can call somebody a princely, priestly name, but if they act like a worm, that's not their function. Our God takes people that are persecutors and He shows them what to do and they get renamed. How do you know Paul? What phrase most often comes to mind when you talk about Paul? The apostle to the Gentiles. Was that because God gave him a business card the day he got saved that said Paul the apostle? Or is it because it's what he spent his life doing? See, apostles were one who was sent. This man was changed from the persecutor of the church to the one sent to start churches. And so we know him as the Apostle Paul. These were not corporate positions to be filled. They didn't send out pastoral search committees and examine his fundraising ability. They didn't even give him a test to see whether he could orate sufficiently. He simply did what Jesus told him to do. And others saw it and named the function. Boy, a lot changes when we look at this this way. I'm called to be a youth pastor, then pastor the youth. I'm called to be a praise and worship leader, then be one in your home. I'm called to be a great man of God. Well, start in your house. <clears throat> no, no, no. I'm called to, be, to, to do that. Then do it right here. Why is it that we wait for a title to be what we're called? This is not biblical. Identity theft has been occurring. Turn with me to Acts 19. After this, we will go to the Older Testament. I'm running out of time, so turn fast. Look at y'all, how fast. you got the fifth gear in your transmission. Acts 19.13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. They tried to invoke it. In Greek, this is anoma. Anoma is name. Name, your strong concordance will tell you, has to do with authority or body of work. What is interesting is that they're Jews. So although they may have been able to speak Greek, and Luke wrote this down in Greek, when they prayed, they prayed in Hebrew. They tried to invoke the Hashem. One of the ways to call God is to say, the name. Blessed be the name. When they tried to invoke the Hashem of Yeshua. They're trying to invoke his body of work, his authority, his character, his reputation. But they never asked the essential question, who are you, Lord, so that they could find out who they were. They simply had heard about this man's work. They had heard about Yeshua. But they had never determined it for themselves. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus. Well, how did the evil spirit know Jesus? Because Jesus was consistently who he was. He was doing damage to the kingdom of hell. And I know about Paul. How did he know who Paul was? Because Paul was consistently doing what God called him to do. But who are you? What a great question. It's a shame a demon had to ask it. But who are you? 
They were trying to be something that they were not. They had never said, who are you, Lord? Oh, you have work for me to do? I'm sorry, I will show you that you are my Lord by doing what you said. They were simply doing what they wanted and trying to invoke the name of Jesus in it. Is it a surprise that they left the house beaten and naked? Friends, there are a lot of well-dressed people today with beautiful cathedrals, very nice lives, expensive cars in their driveway. Then in God's eyes are already beaten and naked. It just hasn't happened yet. I've read the book. I understand the word that the Spirit says to the churches. You can be rich in your own eyes and poor in God's. And you can be poor in everyone else's eyes, but rich in God's. And how does it happen? You must know who you are and function within your calling. Isn't there something satisfying about knowing what you're supposed to be doing? There are a few people that I know that in their secular occupations, they find true joy. They call it their calling. This is because God designed them in a way to be fulfilled by this. Most of the reason that the church runs from seminar to seminar and healing revival to healing revival is because we're still looking for who we are. The same God that is God in Florida or Toronto or wherever else a great thing may be going on is God here. The question is, who are you? Saints, as the church finds this out, do you understand how dangerous we are? Just the shadow of Peter did amazing things. His shadow. Paul could touch a handkerchief and God honored it. Because he knew exactly who he was. He was doing what God called him to do. And I'm not talking about idiots with purple hair that are trying to sell you a cloth on TV. He was doing what God called him to do. And so God honored it. Imagine if we could get our direction right. Imagine if we were willing to test you by, to make a turn and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to strip it down to its bare essentials. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. The church at large is suffering from identity theft, and we don't know who we are. We don't know what to do. The answer is digging deeper into who Jesus is so that he can show you who you are. Will you all give me another 15 minutes? I often preach an hour and a half, and we're only 45 minutes into it. I won't go an hour and a half if you don't make me stop before we're done. Is that fair enough? Because God forbid we make you uncomfortable. Actually, I'm jesting a little bit. I have never been prouder to be around a group of people than you, because I know who you are even when you don't. Sometimes the word of the Lord will come to a man hiding in the threshing floor and say, get up, you mighty warrior. I feel like that's the word for our church. You don't yet know who you are. Some of you women see yourselves covered in shame, and the Lord is saying you're a princess. Some of you men think you're defined by your failure when the Lord says you're defined by His success. I feel this when we worship. You feel it too. It's why there's tears that stream down your face. But at some point, the destiny that you're called to And the footsteps that you're actually carrying out need to begin to converge. And I say, now is that time. If you're called to be an intercessor, like our intercessor in the back corner, got several back there actually, then intercede. What are you waiting for? What are you saving yourself for? I mean, come on, let's be honest. None of us are getting any prettier. 
None of us are getting any stronger. None of us are getting any more capable. When do we use what we have? Our society has pushed back maturity from 13 to 18 to 21 to now lower. Maybe we're in your 40s, you move out of mom and dad's house and do something with your life. When is it that we are ready? This guy's got three years with Jesus. How many of you have? They changed the world. Why do we focus so much on what we're not capable of instead of looking at the fact that He called you? It was never your strength He needed anyway. It was never your strength He needed anyway. You know what He needs? Your obedience. Jacob just had the third person in his life prophesied to him about his call. He's beginning to believe it. It took three strangers from different places to prophesy to him about his calling for him to begin to believe it. I love Jacob and I'm excited. He's 18. This is new to him. What is your excuse? How long before you begin to believe it? When you look in the mirror, your mirror might lie to you. When you listen to your relatives, they might lie to you. The Word of God will not lie to you. And if it says that your function is as a son of God, then you better begin to believe it. You ever prayed for joy? Anybody here ever prayed for joy? I don't mean joy dang. I mean joy. The emotional joy. Have you ever prayed for joy? Raise your hand if you've prayed for joy. I was praying for joy in 1993. I was on my knees and I said, Lord, baptize me in your oil of joy. Lord, I just need your joy. He interrupted my thought with his words and said, act joyful. I considered it for a moment. And I got up and danced around like an idiot, and an amazing miracle happened. I became joyful. Sometimes he is just waiting for us to act like his word is true. Simply take him at his word. Christianity is not passive. You cannot sit on your salvation and expect to see the world change. It doesn't work that way. You can warm a seat in a denomination all your life. I will step on your toes, push you, nudge you, iron sharpen iron, collide with you, do everything I can to create movement. Leaders create movement. Movement creates friction. It's going to happen. So from time to time, about half the seats will empty out in here. That's okay. We're going to work through Houston 70 at a time. But we will find those who want to work within their function. We will. Because the king is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. He's looking for them. He's, his eyes search the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him, the prophet said. I don't want him to have to look any further than right here. I'm going to quote you some scripture. This is Micah. Micah. You will want to write this down. Easy, easy. Micah 3, 8. Micah 6, 8. Micah 7, 8. You hear the progression of scriptures? Micah 3, 8. Micah 6, 8. Micah 7, 8. This is a great start to finding out who you are in Christ. Micah 3.8 says, But as for me, I am filled with His Spirit and power. This is the place to start. Are you filled with His Spirit and power? Micah has no problem contrasting himself with all of the others in Israel. He said their vision is dark. Their dreams are deluded. But I am filled with His Spirit and power. Micah knew who he was and he was not the source. God poured it into him. Micah 6, 8 says, What does man require, or what does God require of you, O man, but to act justly, to walk humbly, to love mercy?
to walk in power. It takes a powerful man to walk in mercy. It takes a powerful man to be able to walk in biblical humility and to act justly. Any coward can lash out in anger. Any coward can refuse to show mercy. Any reprobate can walk around in pride. But it takes a man filled with power to walk in those three things. Micah 7.8 says, do not gloat over me, my enemy, for though I have fallen, yet will I rise. Even if I sit in darkness, light will break forth for me. Do you understand that in this progression of scriptures that we see in Micah, you find out that you have power. You find out how you walk daily. And you find out that even if you stumble, it's not the end of you. Jesus will say, get up. Light will shine for you again. It's not over. Mario may not got it right yesterday, but it's today and I'm still here. I'm still here. In point to mistakes in my life, that's okay. My life's not over. God spoke to Jeremiah in the 51st chapter and 20th verse. He said, you are my war club, my weapon of battle. I will shatter nations with you. You think Jeremiah was perfect? You think he never argued with his wife? You think Jeremiah never had a bad thought. And yet God shattered nations with him and used him like a war club. One visiting pastor here said, are you God's butter knife or are you his war club? I don't want to be a butter knife. We're going to close today in the book of Judges. I want to talk to you about the two primary sources of identity theft. Say, my God, this guy preaches forever. I'm never coming back there. It's all right. You wouldn't be comfortable here anyway. But if you say, my butt hurts a little bit, but yet my spirit is alive, you're going to love it here. (laughs) It's about killing the flesh anyway. And my flesh is growing in one area. I don't know why. Despite all the chewing on it. Uh, Judges 13. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Look at verse 4. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. I don't have time to teach you all that this means. But I want you to understand that Paul applied this very same language to each of you. He said, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. And you were justified. Doesn't matter what you were, God washed things off of you. Doesn't matter what you were, He set you apart in a new birth. And He declared you innocent. Whatever you were yesterday, today you are set apart for Him. Set apart. Now, what was the boy to do? Set apart to God from birth. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. When you were set apart, when you were born again, if you like that terminology, something is there for you to do. God did not save any of you just so that He could be nice to you. He saved you so that you could do something also for Him. The forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. Luke phrases it differently. He says forceful men force their way into it. 
The whole world will try to get you to not be who you're called to be. But the kingdom of God is dependent upon the sons of God being revealed. It actually liberates the earth from its bondage to decay. It brings life where there was death. Samson was born to deliver Israel. Would you say that's his identity? Of course it is. Something robs from identity. Turn with me to the 15th chapter. The most common identity thief that there is. The most notorious repeat offender. Not a pretty name, is it? None of you are raising Arizona fans. I'm sorry. I know you're all readers. His familiarity. Jesus was God. And what they say? And this Mary and Joseph's kid. I remember the way he was born. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Prophets don't grow up from little boys, do they? Familiarity breeds contempt. Cody's called to be a prophet to the nations, let's suppose. No, couldn't be. He's just Cody. I mean, he's just Cody. Would you think it was any different with Jeremiah's peers? Ezekiel's peers? Daniel's peers? It wasn't any different with the Son of God's peers. His own family did not believe in him until after the resurrection. Familiarity is an identity thief. You think this person cannot be special because I know him. They actually said, we know where this man comes from. Nobody's going to know who the, where the Messiah comes from. The Bible doesn't say that, but they did. Familiarity is an identity thief. And for whatever reason, the way other people see you affects the way that you see you. So if nobody sees Brandon as anything other than Brandon, he doesn't see himself as anything more than that. But does the Bible just say, you're Brandon? He's called to something that is supernatural, beyond just Brandon. This is how God can take a humble, ordinary young man and fill him with gifting and fill him with power. The reason that we would rather hire people from outside of our companies to come in and run them and bring people from outside of our church to come in and speak is because nothing that we're familiar with could be good, but something distant, far away, not up close where we can see things. It must be good. We will worship pastors on TV and despise the ones that we know. We will seek the approval of men we've never met and not care about the people that know us intimately. Why? There's an identity thief. He would like you to not esteem your brothers. He would like even more for you not to esteem yourself. Samson was called to deliver Israel. But look at 15.9. The Philistines went up and they camped in Judah, spreading out nearly high. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? <coughs> Sound like the men of Judah didn't know that they were subjects. We have come to take Samson prisoner, they asked, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave at the rock in Etiam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? Oh, they didn't know they were at war. They had just surrendered and accepted slavery. Was Israel called to be a slave? The whole nation had lost its identity. They were called to be princes with God. And one of the original enemies that they're supposed to drive out, now they've accepted servitude. In what area is there a Philistine ruling in your life and you've accepted servitude? 
Oh, well, he's nine feet tall and he's got a spear that's 100 pounds. What could I do? I don't know. What could you do? Pick up a rock, knock him down, cut off his head. Does that story sound familiar? Saints, we're not allowed to accept servitude to the world. We're not allowed. We are not supposed to be enslaved. We were called to be free. Because they didn't know who they were when they looked at Samson, he's just another one of them. He answered, I merely did to them as they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. What happens when the people of God, because of familiarity, misunderstand a person's identity? And they say, that's just Nolan. He's just a kid that works for Thrustmasters. When God has said, no, he's a kid that's going to shake a continent for me. What happens when the people of God misunderstand the deliverer that is sent to them as an ordinary person? You might kill the author of life and not even have known it. it. You might hand over somebody that could have brought you amazing things from God to the enemy bound like a little package. And why? Because I was familiar with him. Saints, we need to look at each other with a new reverence. You could turn to the person to your left and your right and go... There's a son of God sitting in a chair next to you. That is no small thing. If many of the presidents we've had were in this room, you would take note. There's a president here. There are sons of God sitting in here. Angels don't even get what you get. You will judge the world to come. You will judge heavenly powers. Sons of God. We're not ordinary people. I got a 12 year old back there. Not as strong as he will be one day. Not as fast as he will be one day. But you know what? He has heavenly authority and power. There are lots of grandmas in this world, but there's not all the power in hell is a match for them. All they have to do is know who they are. I'm not defined by this flesh suit, I'm defined by the very character of Christ that lives in me. I know who I am. I was put on this earth to excite people about Jesus. That's why I'm here. Wherever I go, I'll be empowered to that end. Received, not received. Makes no difference. God sent me. And I'm a son of God. We need to quit tying each other up and handing them over to them. Who does he think he is? Maybe he believes he's a son of God. Who does that person? Where does she get off? She's seated at the right hand of the Most High in the heavenly realms. What do you mean, where does she get off? God has subjected the world to come to her. What do you mean, where does she get off? The boldness, the righteous are bold as lions. Why have we accepted servitude? Why are those that are meant to change the world subject to it? We cannot be. Look. They tried to tie up Samson, but what happened? Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed. They answered, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. Very nice of them, right? (laughs) We just uh, politely excuse you from our fellowship in the middle of the night. Run on down the road. You don't accept our little box we've crammed God into. So... Then the little thing in the garage outgrows them. People flock from one church to another because they feel the power of God there, but still blind. Nobody sees. That happened in my hometown. 
man got filled with the Spirit of God. So they threw him out. And even when the board member's children got filled with the Holy Ghost, and the church had grown beyond the population of the town, they couldn't see. Maybe they didn't know who they were. Pharisees thought they were sons of God, and they were called sons of the devil by Jesus himself. Agreed the answer. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes. I want you to understand that the enemy is smart. If you've already learned how to break old ropes, he comes up with new ones. David one time said, I could handle it if it were an enemy facing me. But this was one of my companions. We used to go to the house of God together. There will be a new rope in your life, saints. The devil is inventive. That's about all the praise I'm going to give him today. He's busy, though. And there are new ropes. But I want you to see what happens. And they led him up from the rock. And as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came out shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. I am filled with power in the Spirit of God. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. It doesn't matter what the devil brings into your life to try to destroy you. This week, diabetes. Next week, your job's threatened. The next week, a family member's sick. Who knows? It doesn't matter what the attack is, because you are a son of God. You cannot be overcome. Why do we fret? We say we have faith, and our lives are filled with anxiety. Prozac and faith don't really go hand in hand. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey. I wonder why he grabbed a fresh one. Why didn't he just get some old brittle brittle jawbone? He wanted something that was going to take a beating. Friends, you want to go to war, you find the fresh anointing of God each day in your life. Don't cling to what God did for you in the 70s. That was the 70s. People were wearing leisure suits, for goodness sake. (laughs) Daily bread. Daily bread. Find your fresh straw bone and go to town. What was he born for? Killing Philistines. And he was good at it. Because he was born for it. He killed so many Philistines that he got tired. He got tired enough to complain that he was tired. When's the last time you were tired from doing something for Jesus? Because you need to know, he found a rock, a hollow place in the rock, and he cried out to God, and they named it according to its function. In Hebrew, it's in hakor. It means a fountain for him who cried. Our God will fill you if you are hollow because you're poured out for him. The first identity thief you need to know about is familiarity. Familiarity looks and says, it's just Marrero. It's just Marrero. That's not how God looks at us. God says, this mighty man is a warrior. We need to do away with that familiarity, breathe new life into our relationships. The last identity thief is sin-induced amnesia. Sin-induced amnesia happens in Judges 16. I'm not going to read it to you. I just want to tell you about it because we do need to close. Sin-induced amnesia happens when you lay your head in the lap of the enemy. Delilah 
was a Philistine. What was Samson born for? Deliverance from the Philistines. But Delilah had something that Samson wanted. And he put his head in her lap. And even though she had evil intent towards him, he acted like he was not at war with her. He put his head in her lap, and she lied to him, and he accepted it. And she lied to him, and he accepted it. He eventually compromised the one thing in his life that meant anything. His identity. He found himself doing things that no Nazarite should do, like cutting his hair. Saints, do we need to draw a picture for you? son of God. Don't put your head in the lap of the enemy. Don't be less than you were called to be. Don't have behavior in your life that is unbefitting a daughter of the king of the universe. A son of God. Because the enemy has evil intent on you even if you forget that you're supposed to have injurious intent upon him. So she cut off Samson's hair. His eyes. Why did the enemy tear out Samson's eyes? They didn't want him to be able to see who he was. The enemy wants you to forget that you were born to do him damage. He wants you to forget why you're here. He wants to pacify you with the pettings of some whorish prostitute. Boy, that sounds like such injurious hard words, huh? And yet it's on our TVs comes in the form of entertainment. comes in the form of every distraction that the church finds palatable from doing what God called us to do. So we find ourselves without eyes, not seeing the enemy for who he is, not seeing ourselves as what we were called to be, and powerless because our covenant with God has been violated. But I love that next verse. It Maybe the most tragic verse in all of the Bible is God left Samson and Samson didn't know it. But as God often does, the most tragic verse is right next to maybe the most powerful verse in all of the Bible. It says, but his hair began to grow again. If you're alive here today, your hair can begin to grow again. You can find yourself cut off from God. Have forgotten who you were and done horrible things. But if you're alive, there is a chance for your hair to grow again. I want to tell you something God never needed your natural eyes. See, without Samson's eyes, he began to see for the first time in the Spirit. And they put him in a temple to a foreign god to make sport of him. But he began to see with God's eyes, and he said, Here's my opportunity. I can pour out my life for the kingdom that I was supposed to deliver. I can pour out my life and accomplish more with the decreasing of myself than I ever accomplished with the increasing of myself. He gets to become like Jesus because in his death, he does more for God than he ever did in his life. And saints, isn't that what we're called to do, lose our lives for him? If you're alive, there's a chance for your hair to grow again. You don't need... Your eyes, all you need is to see what God sees. And He can deliver you again. And He can teach you to deliver others. You may have the newest, strongest ropes in your life. New addictions, new problems that you thought it's not possible to get away from. And if they knew, they would never even 
spend time around me. And yet they can become like charred flax. We just need to be filled with the Spirit and the power. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. For though I have fallen, yet will I rise again. Michael was filled with power, and yet he knew he would stumble. But it wasn't the end of him. Don't lose your identity because of what the world says about you. Paul went so far as to say, even if I sin, it's not me anymore. It's not me anymore. I am a son of God. Y'all stand to your feet, sons of God. We're going to worship. As you need to leave, it's okay. We don't think less of you. We don't have a program. There are no two songs in an altar call. We don't know what we're going to do. We're just going to worship and see what happens. And you do whatever you need to do, okay? say something to me or you want prayer or you just want the altar, while we sing, go ahead and come forward.
church of the living God can't be contained in four walls. This church strength is the Lord working through your love for each other. I believe God is doing a really amazing thing. And one of them is demonstrated in Anna's life. This is a precious metal that God has drawn from the earth like a magnet. And He's polishing her. And He's teaching her. Saints, part of your function is to help each other. So you ladies get Anna's number. Now go to lunch. Have a good time. Share your lives with each other. This precious saint back here, it's her first time in the church. I feel like I've known her all my life. Y'all, interact with each other. This is not Eric Stevens Ministries or Matthew Piro Ministries. Our names aren't on signs, and we may not, there's no telling. Next week we may end up somewhere else. I hope not, but we may. Life-changing ministries is what he's doing in your lives. <coughs> so y'all wrap your lives around each other. Irma is somebody that you need to wrap your life around. This is a princess for God. Elizabeth is our evangelist, you know, from South Texas. We need to get a bigger car so she can drag more people here. <laughs> Lindsay and Adam and John and Joy are teaching our youth. Y'all interact with each other. There are churches that have tried to structure this. Accountability partners, buddies, those kind of things. I think it's a great idea. I just would prefer for God to orchestrate it. And we may help you in women's meetings and men's meetings. We may help with that. But y'all get to know each other. Don't let a life fall through the crack. Smiley over there is a superstar. But if you don't pull it out of her, you don't know what's there. You don't know. She's like an like a ordinary box with a gold bar inside. And as you begin to shake it, you realize there's something of worth in there. You begin to feel like there's something of substance in there. But it requires that you rub shoulders with her a little bit to see. Mario's not going to talk your ear off. <laughs> but it's full of power, you know. Get to know each other. Spend time with each other. And our church will do what it's called to do. Alright? We'll close and pray. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the baptism that we will have Sunday. We're probably the only church in Sugarland that is going to take a giant horse trough, put it in a parking lot, and watch new life come out of it. But Lord God, we are just foolish enough to do silly things for you. And we're going to do it. Holy, Holy One, we thank you for the new life coming out of here today. We thank you for our visitors and our friends. Lord, we thank you for the men and women that see more of you in us than we see in ourselves. We thank you for the encouragement that comes from fellowshipping with one another. Lord, we pray that in this group of people, your spirit would reign. We impart all the blessing that you've given us to each other. Lord, we will wash one another's feet. We love you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Monday night we're in Corinthians 7 if you want to come to a foundation.